prayer as we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you again for this beautiful location. And Lord, as we get into talking about principles of surviving and thriving, I ask that your spirit would apply each one to our lives as you see best. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so far we had attitude and hope and uh, also we had thinking the unthinkable. Next we're going to look at story listening. Really interesting key to surviving. Story listening. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 13. Now all these things happen to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, it's said that we have all these examples that were given to us, right? So if you will listen to the stories in the Bible, you're going to be ready for what's going to happen now. Story listening. Story listening is a crucial survival skill. We'll illustrate it this way. Do you remember the story of Captain Sullenberger? It was called Miracle on the Hudson. Captain Sullenberger is letting his co-pilot take off. They're near... I believe it's out of New Jersey, but right outside of New York City. And as they're climbing up off the runway, both of their jet engines ingest birds as they're taking off. They go through a flock of birds. Extinguishes both engines. Uh, by the way, if you're in a big chunk of metal that's just climbing away from a runway, do you want to lose all power? Let's see, metal and air. This is not a hot air balloon, is it? And... Instantly, the voice recorder records what starts going on. Captain Sullenberger says, the aircraft is mine. He's just taking control. He just took control from his co-pilot. He tells the co-pilot to go through the restart procedures. The co-pilot pulls out the manual. He's going through all the restart procedures. Uh, Sullenberger radios in the predicament to the towers, and they clear him for landing at a certain nearby runway. And he instantly fires back at them, negative, we're in the Hudson. He did not believe he could make it. Here's the problem. If he attempts to go for the runway and does not make it, he will kill everybody on board the plane and people on the ground. If he goes for the Hudson, he believes he has a chance. Well, number one, not killing anybody on the ground. Number two, he thinks he can save everybody, or at least a lot of people, on his plane. And so he says, negative, we're in the Hudson. And so, how many, you have to have a perfect water landing to have a second try. <laughs> okay, it, it's not like how many chances do you have. You have one chance for a perfect water landing if you ever want to have the opportunity for a second one. Because if you come down with one wing too low, it grabs the cartwheels, that airplane breaks it into pieces, and people don't do too well inside of cartwheeling airplanes. 
if you come down with the tail any too low, it grabs the tail, does a belly flap, breaks the plane apart, and that's not so good. You come down with the nose too low, you're heading for the bottom of the river. And you have that one chance to come down and catch both engines at the same time into the water. And you better hit it right. And yes, there were crosswinds. It does not matter. Nature does not give you another try. You've got to pull this off perfect. And he comes in. And if you've ever seen the video that got caught by some of those security cameras and stuff, this is a big spray of water because you're going to make a lot of spray when you hit that three-point landing and the two engines and the tail catch at the same time. You know, and boom, you got it. I don't know if you remember how many people were injured. It was just a couple of people injured standing on the wing waiting for the ferry. I mean, the wing was wet. There was water lapping across it. And it was a little slippery out there. That's the injuries that day. Pretty good stuff, right? A few days later, New York City. Not New York City, New York State. Another aircraft went down went into houses, killing people on the ground and the people in the planes. Commuter plane. The problem? The pilot did not turn off autopilot in icing conditions as he was supposed to do. I mean, it was regulations of the airlines. It's the safety regulations. He doesn't even do what he's supposed to do. And he and everybody on the board, the plane and people on the ground die. Uh, got a question for you. Which pilot would you rather have been flying with? <laughs> Here's the big difference between the two pilots. Captain Sullenberger has a hobby, basically, of reading the stories of aircraft crisis situations on what went wrong, what went right. And when it comes his time to be in the cockpit during a crisis, he's got all of that information at his access. And friends, as an outdoorsman, there have been multiple times in my life when knowing the stories of how other people survived helped me to survive. There are times in your life when you are going through a crisis when knowing how God people got, it, got people through it before you will get you through it in your turn. And you will get turns at it. And I want somebody who's learning from the experiences around. How about you? Story listening is crucial. Well, let me say this also about story listening. In Daniel, you have the prophecies that tell you the what. The stories will tell you the how. Stories show you how to do it. In the book Great Controversy, a lot of us focus on the last chapters. But friends, the whole center of that book is filled with stories. Go read the stories. Because the stories will tell you how. And those are stories of people in the time of the Reformation. Stories of people who are willing to die for their faith. If we are heading for a world in crisis, maybe we better know those stories so that we can walk the same path that they walked. God doesn't put stories in by accident. The stories tell us the how. Why do you think I'm telling you stories? 
They tell us the how. The next one, trust in God. It's amazing. When you read some of the documentation on survival, uh, in the book Deep Survival, the author of the book starts out very secular. And he admits in the book, the more he interviewed survivors, the more he realized that the spiritual component was exceedingly important in survival. And he began to question his secular viewpoints and begin to think more and more about God as he did his research. You see, trust in God is exceedingly crucial. Uh, Psalm 23 says it this way, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. By the way, that is not a promise that you will not face troubled times. It said, Yea, though I will be walking through the valley of the shadow of death, even when you follow Jesus Christ, but you will not be in fear of it if you're trusting Jesus Christ. For you are with me. You are rod and your staff. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Remember, this is in the presence of the enemies. This is when stuff's going wrong. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's trust in God. 1 John 4 verse 18 says it this way, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. My favorite story on trust in God. It's an awesome story. It comes from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel had given the interpretation of the image, starting with Babylon, going into Medo-Persia and all this, and Nebuchadnezzar goes, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to have an image that's all gold. God doesn't know what he's talking about. Not a good idea to challenge God that way. So he builds this image all of gold, and he invites everybody to come out there. Evidently, Daniel had pulled rank and said, somebody's got to stay back in the capital to run things, since he's kind of prime minister. He doesn't show up out there. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't have any way to avoid this conflict. And they're out there. And when the music starts, they're supposed to bow down and worship. Now, you do realize the Middle Eastern way of bowing down is, you know, down in, way down there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't bend over to hook their sandals or anything. They stand there. They're brought before the king. And the king feels generous. He recognizes these guys. He said, I'm going to give you a second chance. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego basically look at him and say, don't bother. Here's what they say. If, oh, he, he said, if you don't take the second chance, I'm going to heat up the fire seven times hotter and throw you in. And they said, if that's the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor we will worship the gold image which you have set up. King, our God can deliver us, but if he chooses not to, we're still not going to do what you said. Is this a way to make sure this power-hungry king stays happy with you? Uh, boy, he goes furious. He commands that that fire be heated seven times hotter. Basically as hot as they can make it is what that means. 
and they're pumping away on the billows and they've got the petroleum falling in and they're heating it. Yeah, they had petroleum back then. That's It was all over the place there. And they're pumping the billows and they're getting it really hot and they tie Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up really good, tie their hands, tie their feet. They grab them and they go throw them into this pit kiln, which is most likely what it was. And the guys throwing them in are killed by the heat. By the way, what kind of landing would you have getting thrown into a pit full of fire if your feet and hands are tied up? Nice, graceful landing, right? You're going to hit whatever hits first. You're going in. They hit, they bounce, and then they get up because the rope's burned off of them. And they start walking around. Nebuchadnezzar looks in, and he sees them walking around in the fire. He sees his men laying there dead. He goes, wow, all three, uh, all four of those guys. Hey, how many did we throw in? Three. Yeah, then why do I see four walking around in the fire? And the fourth one looks like the Son of God. So Jesus must have been growing pretty well down there, even in the fire. And uh, he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come up out of the fire. Notice he only called three of them out. He's worried about that fourth one. <laughs> what if you're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You're walking around in a fire with Jesus. Uh, outside they want to kill you. Nobody's coming in the fire after you. If I'm Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I look at Jesus and say, uh, do I need to go out? Can I stay here with you? <laughs> and Jesus says, we've got his attention. Go. So they go out. And for a little bit, it had Nebuchadnezzar's attention. Wow. Those are the kind of stories to keep in mind. Trust in God drives out fear. Were they afraid of Nebuchadnezzar? No. Because they had no fear. Nebuchadnezzar ends up being the one that's scared. Trust in God is powerful. Um, I was working at a youth camp in Arkansas, Camp Yorktown Bay, and we had something we called Friendship Camp. The nickname was Switchblade Camp. You nickname the camp Switchblade Camp, there's usually a reason, right? It followed Blind Camp. Uh, well, actually, Blind Camp followed. It was after our regular junior camp. Uh, but we had some really interesting camps in a row. We had a regular junior camp, and all of a sudden, in Switchblade Camp or Friendship Camp, I felt like we did more good in that one week than we were doing most of the other time. We had social services helping round up a hundred and some kids, and they'd send them to our youth camp. Now, I get, have to set the setting for you. They get a bunch of poor white kids out of the country. And they bring them to our camp. And they also grab a whole bunch of inner-city black kids and bring them to our camp. The white kids are kind of prejudiced, and the black kids are kind of pre prejudiced. And you put them together, got the idea on how we get the name Switchblade Camp. And we had a youth director... Uh, that at flag lowering the first night would say, hey, you guys are going to, and, and when there's mostly boys, by the way, in that camp, you guys are going to get three meals a day. You're going to get to ride horses. You're going to get to go motorboat riding, skiing, all this kind of stuff. 
as long as you cooperate with us. Because if you don't cooperate with us, we're going to be on you like white on rice, like cold on ice, and we don't mind sending some of you back where you came from. But we hope you're going to enjoy this with us. Do you realize what happens to you if you don't come on hard like that? Because the next youth director a couple years later decided to say, you know, we hope you'll cooperate because we can't do much if you don't. Before the night was over, he had staff in the emergency room. <laughs> it's that kind of a camp. I was assistant director. I got all the kids that got in trouble. And I'd go haul rocks with them. Let's see, I get a bunch of white kids and a bunch of black kids, put them together, and we're going to go, haul rocks together? <laughs> and I just simply let them know. Guys, which one of you wants to go home first? You give me any trouble, you're gone. Because I know we've got deadly weapons that we're all in this truck. <laughs> and so we'd move rocks during their free time. But to get a better idea of where these kids were coming from my second year at the camp, I went into Little Rock, and on a Friday night, uh, I rode with the Little Rock Police Department all night long in the inner city, in the rough part of town. I signed my life away to ride with that policeman. That neither I nor my ears would hold them accountable for anything that happened. <laughs> yeah, right, okay. So you sign all that away. Get in the car, we're driving out, and the police officer takes me right away into this one housing project where he says, this is the reason I wear a bulletproof vest. I get bullet holes shot in my car periodically driving through here. And uh, I'm thinking, they didn't give me a bulletproof vest. <laughs> so they had me sign a paper that they're not responsible. <laughs> Keeps from messing up another vest. <laughs> so he, we get in there, and it's an interesting night. Partway through the night, we got a call uh, that there was a disturbance going on in this project. We hit from one angle, another police officer and another car comes in from another angle. We get out and we walk in there. And uh, it's some girl, lady, has kicked her boyfriend out of the house, put his stuff on the doorstep and lit it on fire. Kind of a disturbance there in the neighborhood. And when we walk in, all the guys are on one side of the courtyard and all the women are on the other and they're throwing insults back and forth at each other and screaming and yelling. And so the police officers walk in and they start cracking jokes and stuff and one officer talks to the guy and one to the lady and they finally get things basically settled down. Interesting neighborhood. I did notice something. I and one of the police officers were the only white guys around. I thought, hmm, can't hide in this neighborhood. And uh, so we were out of there, and during the night, you know, I, I saw all kinds of things happen that night. Uh, I've watched as police officers go through the doors with their guns first and find out they have the wrong address. That's hard. Thankfully, the guy inside didn't have a gun in his hand when they came through the door. 70-some-year-old man have nearly had a heart attack, though. They told me to stay in the car till they were in. I cooperated. A while later, we got a call of shots fired. And we go into this hotel. And the officer says, 
I want you to slide down under the dash. We pull right up to the door, and he gets out with his pistol drawn and heads for the door. And uh, I cooperated. I stayed down low on the dash. A little bit later, he says, Hey, Tim, come on in here. I want you to see this. Okay? I get out of the car, man. I can smell the alcohol. It's bad. I come in, and there's the gunshot victim laying on the bed. He's not hurt that bad. He's got a hole right through his leg, in one side and out the other. He's got a powder burn around the hole. He was pretty close to the gun when it went off. And uh, he's so drunk, he doesn't realize he's been shot that much. And I come in there, and they start asking questions, and there's this big guy, and the little guy's got the hole through the leg. The big guy's his friend, and they ask the big guy what happened. He tells them one story. They ask the little guy, and he tells them another story. So they ask the big guy again, and he tells another story. It's total chaos. And, uh, and I'm thinking, do these police officers believe what they're getting told? They're acting like they do. And uh, as we're leaving, the, bi- the police officer says, I'll lay money, the big one shot the little one. <laughs> he says, but if they tell the same kind of crazy stories to the investigators tomorrow at the hospital, we'll just pretend it didn't happen. Because they don't have a real victim that can be a witness. And so that's the kind of way. Then we get another call. Armed burglary in progress in the really bad projects. It's now about 2 in the morning. It's Sabbath morning. And uh, we head into the projects. And the police officer tells me this. Don't stay in the car. Stay right behind me. Before it's stay low in the car. This time, don't stay in the car. Because his car is a periodic target here in this neighborhood. He's wearing a bulletproof vest. He does not pull his revolver when he comes out of the car. He comes out with his shotgun level in front of him. You don't have to aim with a shotgun. Not very much. And you can cut somebody in half fast. And he said, stay right behind him. You know where I stayed? Right behind him. <laughs> we went up to a door and another officer coming from another way with his shotgun out comes up to the door and together they knock on the door and they're ready to come in and the door opens and they swing around with guns in their faces and find out they have the wrong address again. They realize they're one building off. And they just looked at each other for a moment and I missed something and they went into the bushes and the shadows alongside the building and they were gone. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like going into the bushes after two guys that have their fingers on the trigger of a shotgun. I didn't know for sure where they were. I didn't know where the bad guys were. There's already a report with bad guys with guns out here. And this neighborhood is notorious for this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, I felt my anxiety level start to go up a little bit. And I thought, what am I going to do? And I thought, well, eventually they have to come back to the car. So I headed back towards the car. But you have to realize, when you leave a police car, you leave it running with the lights flashing and all the doors locked. And so I knew I couldn't get back in the car. But I figured they'd eventually come back if they'd survive the night. And so I headed there. 
And while I'm walking there, I'm watching all these people watching out the windows. And I realize I'm a white young man in his early 20s in street clothes. Police cars in the area. And I'm the wrong color. I look like a plainclothes policeman. These folks don't like plainclothes policemen. Ah. And my anxiety was starting to move up a bit more. And all of a sudden I realized I wasn't here on my own. I was here to learn how to minister the kids and where they're coming from. So I just simply said, okay, Lord, if you have anything else for me to do, you get me out of this. If not, I'll see you at the resurrection. And so I headed for the police car. I sat down on the hoods, and I could look up, and I could see glimpses of people looking out of windows with no lights on. Everybody's got their lights out, but they're watching. And I know some of them could be snipers, because they're there. And I know that we got bad guys in the bushes with guns, and I know I got police officers in the bushes with guns, and I'm sitting out in the middle on the car. And the fear was gone. wasn't that long later I was driving somebody's car and there was a man who hated the guy that I was borrowing the car from. He also hated me because he was an abuser and we'd protected his child. And the guy that I'm driving the car says, oh, by the way, there's a Glock under the seat if so-and-so comes up. He's tried to run me off the road. It's there if you need it. A Glock is an automatic pistol. Nine millimeter. And I'm driving down the road thinking about that Glock underneath the seat. (laughs) And uh, I'm thinking, could I get hold of it fast enough and would my aim be good enough? And all of a sudden I realized I had fear. And I thought back to sitting on a police car, which was a real bad situation, and this was just imaginary. And I thought, you know, I feel a lot safer trusting God than trusting me. The real thing comes from trusting God. That's where you're going to get peace. By the way, I trust God's aim way better than mine. He doesn't miss. And he doesn't ever shoot the wrong one. So, yep, and he's got really good ways of working stuff out. Um, Let's see. Let me show you this one. Humor. In the military, there's what they, a lot of people have what they call gallows humor. The reason they do is they go through very fearful experiences. And if you can't name your humor and name your fear, you can't control it. And so they name it often in humor. Uh, they interviewed a lot of uh, aircraft carrier pilots. Now, aircraft carrier landing is a lot different than this airport, and they consider this one somewhat difficult. This airport is not moving. It's not moving up and down while you're trying to land on it. And so you come into an aircraft carrier, you're coming in from behind, and you're coming in full throttle. Just in case you miss, you'll have enough speed to take back off. But if you're coming in and this boat is going up and down, if you happen to come a little low while it's up, they call it hitting the fantail. Uh, It goes splat, and it's done. And so you're coming in, and you want to come down 
after you're over the deck and you want you come down really hard you're hoping your tail hook's going to catch on one of those cables there's three or four, I think three of them in case you missed the first one you got the second one in case you missed the second one you've got the third one and in case you missed that you've got your throttle so you can take off again if you didn't break any landing gear only when you hit the deck hard <laughs> and so that's the procedure they hit so hard that they often break collarbones uh, it's a hard landing and so these guys are coming in and they have all kinds of jokes about ways of getting killed so you can name your fear to deal with it friends there's a much better way to name your fear God here's what I'm afraid of it's all yours you take care of it it's not my life it's your life there have been multitude, multi, multitudes of times in my life where I've had to say Lord if you have anything else for me to do you're going to have to get me out of this one and so I just know it works you give it to God it's not your life anyway it's his and if he has something else for you to do, friends, there is nothing anybody on this earth can do to stop his plan for you. So keep that in mind. You don't have to live in fear. So we have trust in God. Uh, being alert and situationally aware. All right. Keep, keep me on track of where I need to get in this presentation on which day. Um, Let's take a look first at 1 Peter 5.8 and then Isaiah for listening. 1 Peter 5.8 Be sober, be diligent, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And for listening, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. Survivors are very alert. They're paying attention to what's going on around them. Somebody who survived something like a cougar attack. You know, the common knowledge used to be cougars or mountain lions don't attack people. I said they used to have that is the common t teaching. Today, mountain lions have seemed not to read the information. And multitudes of people have been attacked by cougars now. But you read the survivor's descriptions they can describe the fur of that cougar they can describe the feel of its breath and the feel of its fangs scraping against their skull they can describe how they're feeling around for that big cat's eyes because they're going to gouge him out to get rid of him while well, he's got him by the skull that's a survivor they're not quitting they're hyper alert they know if the things are here, there's eyes right above it, and I'm going to get them. You know, if they weren't a survivor, they wouldn't have been doing that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> Aircraft pilot, Navy pilot, he's flying at over the speed of sound. When his aircraft malfunctions, and he's headed straight down towards the Atlantic Ocean at night. Not a good thing. It is not responding to anything he's doing. He, he's lost all control of the aircraft. So, he tells his uh, assistant back there, navigator, we're 
ejecting. He hits the eject button. They're both blasted out of the cockpit. I don't know. I have no idea fathoming what it's like to get exposed to air at above the speed of sound. The navigator died instantly. It ripped his aorta right off from the impact of the air. The guy who lives to tell the story, his helmet's ripped off, breaks both of his legs and one of his arms. I mean, your arms and legs aren't meant to fly at the speed of sound. Okay? Uh, it takes that good-fitting helmet right off without unhooking anything. All right? And as he lands in the water, do you know what he describes? He describes the beauty of the night. He's very alert. As he touches the water, and by the way, there's a raft on a tether that automatically inflates too. It hits first, and as it does, there's all these little microscopic animals that glow in the dark as it hits. Then he hits, and he makes this big splash, and there's all this glowing around him. And he thinks, wow, this is really neat. Then he decides he better get in that raft. But he's got two broken legs and one broken arm. You ever tried to get back in a canoe after you get dumped out of it? How do you like to try to get in with a broken arm and two broken legs? He tried two or three times and he couldn't make it. And he decided he was just going to slide underwater and take a big breath. Then he thought about his wife and kids. And he said, no, I can't do that. He said, God, help me. He doesn't know how, but when they found him, he was in the raft. I'm just letting you know, somebody in that kind of pain as a survivor can describe what's happening in the water around him, that the little glowing animals. Survivors are often that way. They can give you all the details of all kinds of stuff that was going on around them. And God says, be alert. You have an enemy like a roaring lion who wants to wipe you out. Be alert. And then he said, listen. Because there's going to be a little voice behind you telling you to turn to the left hand or turn to the right. And people tell me that they've never heard the Holy Spirit. You just don't know how to listen. He's been screaming at you for a long time probably. Yeah, it comes as a still small voice that can be really loud after a while. Especially if you're arguing with him. But let me illustrate. You have never ever felt you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do it, you shouldn't do it, don't do it, don't do it. That's the Holy Spirit. Or, go help so-and-so. Or, go speak up for some... No, if I speak up for them, everybody will laugh at me. No, go speak up for them anyway. I tell people, one of the best ways to know it's the Holy Spirit talking to you, He's asking you to do something you don't want to do. Because if you wanted to do it, He wouldn't have to convince you the right way. You just go do it on your own. He just lets you go do the right thing. When you're having a hard time with the right thing, that's when he will come and talk to you. Are you listening? There was a pastor who was going to be going on a flight. And he had this really strong impression he should not go on this flight. But he thought that was crazy. So he packed his bags and he headed for the airport. All the way to the airport, it is, you shouldn't get on this flight. He gets to the airport, he checks in. Do not 
go on this flight. And he doesn't know what the Lord is talking to him about, but he finally decides, it, I, it's not just my mind, it must be the Lord, or I'm going crazy, or whatever, and he decides not to get on the plane. He's already checked in. He decides not to get on the plane. The airplane crashed. Do you know what happens to the person who's checked in and doesn't get on the airplane and it crashes? You get interrogated. <laughs> Why didn't you get on the plane? Because God told me not to. And so you're the only one God told not to get on the plane? He said, well, God argued with me for a long time and I almost got on the plane. How do you know that he didn't tell a lot of other people not to get on too? Maybe I'm the only one that listened. I don't know about you, but that sobers me up because there's a lot of times I don't think I've listened very well. I was on my ho way home from school, in high school, late one night. I'd been playing floor hockey in a gymnasium. It's about 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. I'm on my way home. I walk across this university campus. I drop off the hill right behind a professor's house. I live out in the forest behind. The roads are a couple miles around. It's just a couple hundred yards through the woods. So guess which way I go in the dark? I go through the woods. And I'm going along, and I'm feeling my way down this trail. And I say feeling because it's a wet, rainy night in March in Michigan. The leaves are all wet. It's probably in the 40s. And there are little saplings along this trail. Do you know what happens to you if you bump a little sapling in a cold, wet weather? You take a very cold shower. I do not want to do that. So I'm walking very slowly, and the leaves are wet, so how much noise am I making? None. Right up beside me, about where the second row is, there's a rabbit that's hopping along just below me. Just a hop, hop, real slow and relaxed. It doesn't know I'm here. And so now I'm really quiet. I want to see how long I can keep walking side by side to this rabbit. I can't see him, but I can hear him. And he can't hear me. I think this is awesome. I get to this great big tulip poplar tree that's about this big around in diameter, and now I'm going to go straight down. The trail's going to go about where that second row is, turn and go across the little bridge on a creek. Our house is just a little ways on the other side of the creek. I'm coming around the tree, and a voice goes off inside my head that says, Tim, you're not alone. Say hello. Now, one of the definitions of going crazy is starting to talk to yourself. <laughs> Out loud, <laughs> in the woods. I don't talk to myself alone out loud in the woods at night. Tim, you are not alone. Say hello. <sighs> and I'm just stopped standing there. The rabbit even knows there's nobody here. If the rabbit doesn't know you're here, Tim, how would it know if somebody else is here? There's a point of logic in that one. I don't want to say hello. Say hello, you're not alone. And now I think I'm really losing it because I'm thinking, okay, if I'm not alone, I can hide behind this big tree, right? That wasn't the Holy Spirit. That was just mine, mine kicking off from it. And he's just saying, say hello. I finally think, okay, I will say hello. I get this impression, if you're not alone, nobody will know. Okay, I'll say hello. It took me a couple of tries to get any sound. Because <laughs> I think, I'm going crazy. I finally said it, got it out. Hello. Before I could get behind the tree, I was blinded by a very bright light. For what I didn't know, right about 
where this guy with the colorful shirt is on the second row, laying on the trail was an armed man. He was not looking my way. He was watching the stream. He was in an ambush for somebody he expected to be coming down the stream. I had just walked up behind an armed man waiting in ambush. Not a good scenario. He had a searchlight with him. That's why I was blinded before I could get behind the tree. He wanted to know who I was. And since he had the drop on me, he got to ask first. And uh, I explained, I live right here, and I wanted to know who he was. I couldn't see him, he could see me. It's not a fair situation. At this point, I didn't know he was armed because all I could see was the spotlight. And uh, he was a game warden. That's a salmon spawning stream, and we were having poaching problems. The reason he didn't hear me coming behind him is there was a rabbit hopping straight towards him, and he thought it was funny that the rabbit didn't know he was there. Same rabbit I'm listening to. I am just really glad I didn't take another couple of quiet steps, and the rabbit and I got there at the same time. Because, friend, if you're an armed person and somebody is within arm's length, it's pretty much shoot first, ask questions later. At this distance, you're almost too close. I am so glad I listened to the voice that said, Tim, say hello. You're not alone. Are you listening? I'm going to tell you one other story about listening. Um, it's not all about your physical survival. I was in a home giving Bible studies to a young lady. Uh, she was probably 11 years old or something like that. She wanted to be baptized. Her mom attended our church. Her dad did not. Her dad did not like Seventh-day Adventists or Christians. He drank a lot and he hunted a lot. But since he was an outdoorsman and I was, I had tried to make some friends with him. This particular day, I'm at their house, and he comes home while I'm there studying the Bible with his daughter, which I know he really does not like. It always makes it a dicey situation when you're doing that. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit says, talk to Charlie about spiritual things. And I respond instantly in my brain, I like my nose. <laughs> I don't want to lose it. <laughs> And uh, I did not talk to Charlie when he walked into the house. As I'm driving away, the Holy Spirit is going, talk to Charlie about spiritual things. Talk to Charlie. I go to the church, and uh, I'm thinking about that. And now it is, call Charlie, talk to him about spiritual things. So the next day, in the afternoon, I call Charlie's house. Now you have to understand, Charlie doesn't get off until 4.35 o'clock, so I called about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Chicken, I know it. Charlie answered the phone, he got off work early. And nobody else was there, and I, and I just said it real quick, I... I I get tired of fighting against the Holy Spirit, so I just get it over with. <laughs> I said, Charlie, uh, I just felt like I ought to ask you, if you ever want to talk about spiritual things, hey, I wouldn't tell your wife, 
I wouldn't tell anybody. We could meet at the church, your house, a restaurant, wherever. But if you ever do want to talk about spiritual things, just let me know. That's all I wanted to tell you. I'm just letting him cut it off really quick. He says, you know, matter of fact, I would like to talk about spiritual things. How about later tonight at the church? Okay. Now, I'm hoping it's going to be a good thing. <laughs> he shows up at the church, and right off the bat, he says, Tim, you've got to understand. For two years, I've been secretly studying my Bible to prove my wife wrong. He says, I can't do it. I'm tired of fighting. I'm ready to accept Jesus Christ and be a Christian. And so we go through that together. And he says, by the way, I'm going to be coming to church Sabbath. And this is now Thursday night. <laughs> he said, don't tell my wife. I said, okay. Sabbath morning, I made sure I was at church plenty early where I could watch the parking lot. <laughs> and after a while, in comes Charlie's van. It's always his wife and the girls in the van. But this particular time, his wife hops out of the driver's seat, and she doesn't wait around for the girls. She just beelines toward the church with the strangest look of total disbelief, total chaos in her mind. She just doesn't know what's happening, and she heads for the church. And Charlie gets out of the passenger seat, nice and calm and relaxed in a suit. He helps the kids out of the van. And she hits the front door and she sees the grin on my face. And she says, did you know this was going to happen? I said, yes. What I didn't know is, she's getting in the shower. And Charlie said something. And she, said she thought she heard Charlie say he was going to go to the church with her. But she knew that couldn't be right. So she gets in the shower gets out, and he's dressed in a suit. And she's really wondering where he's going. She knows it can't be church. She had to misunderstand that. He's going somewhere else. And then he just hopped in the van when they were getting ready to drive out of the driveway. And so she's still not sure about this, but she sees the good on my face, and she accuses me of knowing what's going on. She was right. <laughs> Our head elder has been praying for this guy for years. And he sees him walk through the front door. I hadn't even told him what was about to happen. Instead of coming to the front door to greet Charlie, he turns around and he goes in the far back part of the church. And I'm looking at him thinking, what is up? I take off after him. He, he, he looks like he's mad about something. And he's standing at that back door, in that back room. He's holding the door open. He sees me coming. And it's like, I'm holding the door open. We're going to have a talk. This is not the way I was expecting things to go down this morning. He closes the door. <laughs> it was priceless. And then he just goes, yes! straightens his tie, walks out and greets Charlie. <laughs> A couple of weeks later, we baptized Charlie. In the baptistry, I said, Charlie, do you want to tell the church anything? He said, yeah, I do. He said, there came a day in my life when I said, Lord, send somebody to talk to me. He said, the very next day, Pastor Tim called and asked if I wanted to talk about spiritual things. I turned to Charlie in the baptistry and I said, Charlie, I fought it for one day. 
What's the cost of ignoring listening to the Spirit? What's the cost? Souls are on the line. We need to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit. He promised that he would speak. He'll give us more information than we ever thought possible. He'll line all kinds of stuff up for us. Learn to listen. And you'll be a survivor with Jesus Christ. Um, flexible preparedness. Let me see where I am. Well, better keep rolling. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Are we supposed to be ready to answer questions? Are you ready to answer questions? If not, you better start studying. Be ready to answer questions. All right, next one. But sanctify the word God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I like uh, the New International here where it says with gentleness and respect. Always be ready to give an answer. If somebody was to ask you how to become a Christian, would you know what to say? Study. Make sure you know. By the way, if your memory's like mine, you forget a few things. But I will promise you this. If you've studied, the Holy Spirit can bring amazing detail back when you need it. There are even times, I know it's happened to other people, it's happened to me as well. I feel like taking notes about what I'm, how, the answers that I've got because I don't think I'm going to remember what I'm telling this person. Because the Holy Spirit is just firing off all kinds of verses that are going together. And I'm going, wow, where's this stuff coming from? It comes from studying and reading God's Word. And when it needs to, He's going to put it together for you. But first you need to be studying so that He can do that. But beware of this one too. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. By the way, that proverb appears twice in the book of Proverbs. Maybe it was because it's important. You see, we as Christians start thinking we have all the answers, and if you think you have all the answers, you're never going to learn something new. Beware that your ways may be leading you into trouble. Always be ready to restudy something. Many, many people get into really big trouble because... They're not flexible in their preparedness. Let me tell you the story of a, three climbers. They were going to be climbing some of the big walls in Yosemite. I forget which route they were climbing. But they were leaving early in the morning. They were going to drive to Yosemite. They're going to climb. But one guy runs late, have a little car trouble, flat tire and stuff along the line. And they're now running really pretty late. But they have a plan, and boy, we're going to stick to the plan. They get to Yosemite, they check the weather board really quick. And they didn't notice it was yesterday's weather report on the date that they looked at. They didn't notice, yes, that they should have been expecting thunderstorms in the afternoon. And I don't know how many of you have been in high-altitude thunderstorms or exposed on a cliff during a thunderstorm. It's a do-not-repeat experience if possible. 
I've been caught out there on some. I've talked to people that are climbing, and when they describe when the rocks start to ring, usually somebody in the party dies right after that. I've never heard the rocks ring. I don't want to. I have been stuck on a cliff in a thunderstorm. It's not fun. So these guys didn't notice to watch for thunderstorms. They could have easily taken an easier route and done something else that day. But no, they've got a plan and boy, they're sticking to it. And they start working up and in the distance they see a thunderhead building. And they're looking and they're thinking, we can do this. And they keep pushing. By the way, if you're pushing hard on a cliff, you're likely to make mistakes. They didn't. They were fortunate enough at that one. And the first guy has summited. He's up there. And he's tied off. The second guy is just coming up over the top. And the third guy is down below running a belay. When all of a sudden, there is a flash of lightning that blows both of the guys on top back over the edge. Leaving them hanging from the top. The guy below cannot do much because he's a blower and if he does anything, somebody dies up above him as they go on past into the bottom. And so there's not much he can do. So we have two unconscious climbers hanging. Another guy stuck. Other climbers see what's going on, move in, call for help, and move in and help these guys. And in the accident report of the rangers, they go through and they line up what happens. It's all about all these things happening, the flat tire and everything else. They're running late. They miss the weatherboard. And they go ahead and do something that they shouldn't have done anyway with an electrical storm coming in. And then whoever writes the report put in this little note. They should have known better. All three were electrical engineers. <laughs> But friends, if you have a plan and you're not flexible, your plan will take you to your death, quite literally at times. If you have a plan spiritually, you know all the answers, but you're not flexible to listen to the Holy Spirit, it will lead you to your spiritual death and ultimately to the second death. You must stay open to the leading of the Holy Spirit in God's Word. Now, my closing story on Friday is going to be how I, in a, leading a team of eight, nearly killed all of us because I was not flexible one day. We came really close. Now, there's the new normal. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Oh, good or bad, you can make it through. Learning to accept the new normal, being flexible, prepared, but accepting the new normal. Um, 
is something I use in my mind a lot. This too shall pass. If everything's going wonderful and I seem like everything is on top of the world, I'll remind myself this too will pass. If everything is going horrible, I remind myself that this too shall pass. My son uh, recently totaled a car in West Virginia, uh, ended up homeless. I made some contacts. He got a place to stay and he's got a job. He just lost that place to stay today, and he called me a little while ago. He said, I only have bad luck. I reminded him that this, too, shall pass. He said, remember all the other things that you've just gotten through. Trust God, and let's see what he's going to open up. Don't know what that's going to be. So I'm thinking about West Virginia today, too. But we have to accept the new normal. The other thing, my wife and I look at each other and often say, it is what it is. How much time should I waste fighting against what is? I'm not going to change it. It is what it is. All I can do is learn how to deal with what is. Let me illustrate it this way. Um, I, was, I got up one morning. I went into the closet. And here's the closet door. My slippers are right there. I bend and twist to get my slippers. The next thing I know... I'm laying on my face, and I can't move. I, I just damaged my back. I'd stressed it the day before. It was nice and relaxed now after a night's sleep, and I went and did that bend and a twist. You may notice I didn't do the bend and the twist. <laughs> no, thank you. I don't want to be on my face in front of all you guys. <laughs> and so... I'm laying there, and I figure out finally how to get up, and I call a member who is a pain management doctor, and he says, well, Tim, make sure that you just don't lay down and don't do anything. You need to keep moving around and doing some things. Well, what I had on my agenda was to put in a wood stove. And to put my wood stove in the basement, I was coming out the basement wall below grade, below the dirt level, coming up into the garage, which meant I had to break a hole in the garage floor, and I'm going to run it up through the garage and out the roof. And so, uh, that's not so bad. It's just three and a half, four inches of concrete in the garage floor, right? What I didn't know is they poured one garage floor, it cracked, so they poured a second one over. It was nine inches thick. By the way, nine inches is a lot harder than three or four. And so, I go to work on breaking out the concrete. He told me not to take it too easy. And my back just wasn't feeling much better. <laughs> and so we went through a couple of days. And on Sabbath morning, um, had something happen, and I caught my son, and it jerked my back. He was about 14 years old. Oh, man, it felt like an electrical explosion. And, oh, it hurt. And I got to church, and I'm preaching. And I didn't kneel for prayer or those kind of things. I walked very carefully, and unfortunately, I dropped one of those little clicker things. I had to ask somebody from the front to come and get it. That was beyond my abilities. 
to get. Now I can get those kind of things. I don't bend the same way I used to. <laughs> and uh, so I've got an evangelistic series starting later that week. How? So I go home Saturday night, and I'm hanging on this chin-up bar in my basement, stretching my back. It feels a lot better while I'm hanging there. I don't know if you've noticed, but you can't hang there forever. So eventually I decide I'm going to let go, and when I let go, I have one of those electrical explosions again. This time I'm finding myself face down on the basement floor, and I can't move. I call my pain management doctor member, and he shows up in my basement with his little black bag. And uh, he pulls up my shirt, and he pulls out his syringe and some vials of different stuff, and he starts injecting my back in several places. He said, did you feel that? And I said, well, I felt a needle, if that's what you mean. He said, no, did it make any difference? I said, no. He said, well, I can tell you this. It's not muscular, it's structural. That's not what you want to hear. And I said, okay. He said, anything you, you can do? He said, yeah, I can give you an epidural. I said, please keep your needles out of my spinal column. And they eventually helped me get to my bed Saturday night. Sunday morning, I can't get up and go to the bathroom. I cannot move. I did a church board meeting by telephone. I called my church member friend and said, you know, I think I'm ready for that epidural. So he comes over to my house. They roll me on my side, put an ironing board under my back, roll me back on the ironing board and use that to pop me into an upright position because they couldn't get me upright any other way. It hurt too bad any other way. Now that they got me upright, he uh, takes my shirt off. He masks off a section of my back. Uh, the only reason I know what it looks like is my daughter was home from college and she had all kinds of fun taking pictures. <laughs> and uh, he goes in with his needle and he gives me an epidural. And he says, if this is a good epidural, he said, you're going to have about two weeks. I said, good, that'll get me going in my evangelistic series. <laughs> He's saying, that's if it's a good one. He got done. I got up, walked downstairs. I could move. I could get up and down. I could sit in a chair. I was praising the Lord. He said, you've got two weeks at most. You better start therapy before that week's two weeks are over. So I started therapy. And by the way, those of you who have had back injuries can understand this. If you're in your car by yourself and you need to close the car door, you use the accelerator. <laughs> because you cannot reach out to pull it in. Those are the kind of things you have to do. Why am I telling you this? Because I discovered some things. It's called a new normal. I could complain about what I no longer had or I could use what I have. And so, within a few weeks, I was picking strawberries with my family on my knees because I couldn't bend. It wasn't easy, but I could pick a few. By the time that summer was done, I'd moved nine truckloads of granite rock, dump truckloads, and built retaining walls in my backyard, one little piece at a time, very carefully. Uh, I've since gone rock climbing and backpacking again. I still backpack a lot, and uh, I'm careful. Uh, 
a careful how I pick up things. All those kind of things. My back lets me know from time to time I need to be careful. But friends, you can spend your time worried about what you don't have or you can use what you still have. Cancer patients. You're going to be told, and here's the plan, and then something changes, and they give you a brand new plan, and then something changes, and they give you a brand new plan, and you can argue and fight, or you can accept what is and make the best of it. And Paul says, I can take it. If there's stuff to eat, I can take it. If there's not, I'll be content wherever I am. A survivor doesn't worry about what you don't have. They figure out how to use what they have. It's not, it's, you're just a waste of time to do it any other way. And you may not survive if you don't do it that way. Okay. Truth matters. Yeah. I can get truth matters here. John 8, 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Truth really does matter. When I was a kid, I was taught that if you are thrown into ice water, you have three to five minutes of survival time. That is a deadly lie. How do we know? Well, there's a guy by the name of Professor Geisbecht. His nickname is Professor Popsicle. He studies hypothermia. Professor Geisbeck has reduced his own body temperature, core temperature down in the hypothermic conditions 39 times to study hypothermia. Ooh, I've been in hypothermia once. I don't want to repeat it. He claims he hates cold. Oh, no kidding. Uh, Here is what he will tell you. Here is the truth. It's called the 110-1 rule. You have one minute to control your breathing if thrown into ice water conditions. Anybody ever gone through the ice into ice water? What's the first reaction? (laughs) Get control of yourself. First thing. Snap out of that. You have one minute or less to get that done. Faster the better. Because you have ten minutes of muscular activity. After ten minutes, you will not be able to control your muscles. Now, I have been in ice water a couple of times by accident. I've been in ice water by choice, believe it or not. Some of those crazy things teenagers do to prove that they're tough. Go swimming out with the chunks of ice floating around out there. Actually, it was big chunks of styrofoam, somebody on that chunk of styrofoam, me on this one, and it's who gets knocked into the ice water first. (laughs) And we all went in a few times. But uh, it's cold when you get into that stuff. You have 10 minutes of muscular activity. If you cannot get out within 10 minutes, here's what you do. You go to the biggest, most stable chunk of ice around. If you cannot pull yourself out on top of it, you put your arms on it and you hold still because if it's cold enough, you will freeze. And if it's cold enough, it's almost like instant. Instant freeze. 
I have watched water splash over an ice wall out on Lake Michigan. I'm crazy enough that I broke all the rules as a teenager and I spent hours and miles offshore on the ice flows in Lake Michigan. I have watched in sub-zero temperatures as water comes over the edge, tumbles down the backside, and is literally ice cubes going down the backside before it's down. If it's cold enough, you can put your arms out there and they will freeze. Now, when you no longer have muscular activity, the ice will hold your head above water. It's one minute to control breathing, ten minutes of muscular activity, but you have one hour before you go unconscious if your head does not go underwater. How many rescue teams could get to you within ten minutes? Only if they're watching you go in. How many rescue teams can get to you in an hour? The odds go way up. So the truth is a big difference. There's another lie out there that is deadly. That one is that in airplane crashes, everybody dies. The truth is over 90% of people in airplane accidents survive. Wow. I mean, this big one that just went down in San Francisco. Two died, or three, a third one died later. One of them actually got run over by a fire truck. Uh, I'm not blaming the firemen. You have somebody in the phone, they can't see them. Uh, by the way, if you're in foam, don't lay down near a fire. Stay up as long as you can, because you can get seen that way. <laughs> and... Uh, so the majority of people live. But because most people think they're going to die. I was talking to a guy on my last flight in Las Vegas, coming around to coming here. And he was really talkative. Because when people get nervous, they drink alcohol to try and calm their fears, right? So they're drinking alcohol. This guy is just talking to anybody he meets. He's really kind of lit up. He, he tells me his family thinks it's really funny when he flies because he gets really lit up. And twice, he's missed flights because he didn't know his flight was leaving. He was too drunk. He's in the airport but missed the flight. Now I understand why they're calling for people. <laughs> you're, you're checked in, but your flight is leaving. We're leaving. Where are you? You know. Now, because they think that if a flight goes down, they're going to die, they get drunk. But here is the real rule. If a plane goes down, you have 90 seconds to get out of it before a fire burns through the fuselage. If you're drunk, are your odds going to go up or down? Well, again, oh, and since you're going to die, you don't need to listen to the safety instructions about where the exits are, right? Now, notice the lie is now setting people up to get killed. Have you ever been in airports and noticed how especially a lot of ladies are dressed? Mini skirts, flip flops, sandals, whatever else. Here's what else they know. The people that are most likely to survive are young executives, because they don't wait for orders, they give them. They're athletic, usually. They're wearing closed toed shoes and long pants. By the way, if you have to run through fire and broken glass and mangled steel, which one is going to give you an advantage? A mini skirts with high heels 
or somebody with tennis shoes and long pants? Oh, but because people don't know the truth, they set themselves up for failure. By the way, if I get thrown in ice water and I think I'm going to survive three to five minutes, about how long will I live? Three to five minutes. Now, in today's world, people say, the Bible, it doesn't matter. There are no such things as absolutes. And the Bible claims to have absolutes. Well, this is the truth that sets you free. Uh, anything goes isn't going to save you for eternity. By the way, they believe a lie when they believe there are no absolutes. I can prove it really simply. As soon as somebody tells you there are no absolutes, they're making an absolute statement. So their statement is self-contradictory. It cannot be true. To say there are no absolutes is an absolute. So you may as well go to the source of the absolute. The truth will set you free. And you will be free indeed. Yep. This is our cutoff time. And uh, tomorrow, we're going to be picking up with caring relationships and never, ever give up. And uh, let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the principles from your word that can get us through all kinds of stuff in this life. And Lord, in the whole process of all this, Lord, I just simply ask that you use it all for good like you promised. Help us to have that kind of loving, trusting attitude. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll see you tomorrow.